Welcome to the Sailing Into Oblivion podcast, where we sit down with everyday people who do extraordinary things. I'm your host, Jerome Rand. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show, the Christmas special, I guess, uh, the end of the year sort of thing. I might have one more show before the turn into 2024, possibly a little cut uh, from a Sven cast, if you will, but we'll cap that off later. Today's show is uh, we're going to do this in two parts, but I'm going to upload them same time, uh, trying to keep it you know close to an hour for each one. But I had the privilege of hopping on board Cassiopeia 2, a beautiful old schooner that is captained and owned by Harold Neal. Now, Harold and I first met over in Fort Pierce when I was doing my presentation. We got to talking and... Um, one of the things that I've always liked to do in life is dream big. Set your goals way up here. You know that old saying, aim for the stars, land on the moon, that sort of thing. Harold, besides having a, a whole lifetime of experience, sailing, racing, crewing, all sorts of stuff. I mean, his stories are, they're awesome. I would love to sit down with him again just to get deep into, you know, the South Pacific and all the time he spent there and the Caribbean, all that. But he is dreaming big. He has this vision of having a fleet of schooners that are destined for humanitarian missions all over, wherever they can set sail to. It's really a beautiful idea. It almost, almost sounds a little bit like uh, Matt Rutherford's ideas of using sailboats for research vessels, all that sort of stuff. I don't know. It, it, it's 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 a, a lofty goal for sure, but I he has so much passion and enthusiasm for it. Um, you know, I I didn't I didn't have to say too much during this podcast. You know, normally these are kind of conversations, but I also know that when I'm sitting down with somebody that has so much experience sometimes it's just you know nod and and just listen and I I like to do that you know every once in a while I like to shut up and um, you know hear about other people's experiences so hopefully it's not too one-sided but essentially I was just sitting aboard this beautiful beautiful vessel and um, yeah I just wanted to hear the whole story so Again, it's two parts. I'm going to break it in half uh, in the most convenient place I can. And then uh, the second will literally just pick right up. I'm not even going to do another intro or anything like that. So hopefully you enjoy this podcast, this conversation uh, aboard Cassiopeia 2 with Harold Neal. Now, before we start the show, just like I always say, huge, huge thanks. End of the year. All my supporters, holy cow, the Patreon family, all the people who have uh, donated outside of Patron uh, with you know PayPal, Venmo, shout out Sailing Vessel Castrol. You know what you did, and I appreciate it. Um, what can I say? I'm absolutely humbled that people would would ever think that the content that I'm creating is is worth any sort of monetary value. Uh, and and big thanks from all the people who just listen because you are the ones that are keeping this show ad-free so it's not getting broken up and all that sort of stuff. So huge shout-out for all those who have supported me for months, weeks, years, days. It doesn't even matter. If you can only do it for a day, that's awesome. Um, it's all a huge, huge help. So thanks. Big shout-out there. Uh, if you want to join the family of Patreon uh, subscribers, just follow the link in the description. The merch line little news update. I cut all the prices down to pretty much next to no profit um, because I sort of figure, you know what, <sighs> it's one of those things where, you know, when you when you sign up with these companies, they do all the shipping, they do the printing, blah, blah, blah. I don't have to do anything. Um, essentially, 
I had it before in the guise of instead of doing like a GoFundMe to get money for, you know, Sparrow and sales and all that sort of stuff, I would much rather be able to provide something for an exchange. Um, I think GoFundMe is great for a lot of like emergency things, you know, your house burns down, all that sort of stuff, but I don't want to just start one, um, you know, for... I need sales. So I want to give you something in return. And um, that was sort of the thinking as far as the shirts and the, all that sort of stuff. And the pricing, I, you know, I was kind of looking at it as like a profit thing, I guess. And um, having thought about it, I was kind of like, you know, yeah, 60 bucks is pretty ridiculous for a uh, sweatshirt, even though they're really nice. Um, so what I did essentially was go in and just cut it down so that, uh, I got them down to about as minimal as I humanly possibly can. It's like a 5%, 10%, maybe 20% discount on some of the stuff, I guess. But if before you might have been a little bit like, whoa, that's that's a bit too much. Hey, you know, Maybe it's a, a little more in the price range now because I figure, hey, if we can just get those shirts out there, great. Um, so follow the link in the description for that one. And uh, obviously, if you want to just donate via paypal venmo we got those links in the description as well and then if you want uh, the children's book it's i had to fine tune it a little i got the physical copy in my hand and i was like yeah there's some you know little issues here and there but was able to correct those uh soon enough it'll be out in a hardcover edition where we'll have three of the six books in one and then three in the other uh right now it's available for the Kindle, and then it's also available in paperback. And, you know, it's like a 20-something page book, so it's, it's pretty small, but there's going to be six of them. So, uh, you know, link in the description for those. If you got some little ones that might want to, uh, you know, get inspired to get out there and have a big adventure, it's pretty uh, pretty fun book, and the illustrations are awesome. I just, they're, it's so funny to look at those things, so... Other than that, if you want to reach out to the show, sailingintooblivion.com and podcast button and contact the show. Woo! That was a mouthful. Holy cow. All right. So on with our conversation with Harold Neal aboard Cassiopeia 2. Thanks for listening and have a wonderful holiday season. Safe, sound, enjoying your time with friends and family. Awesome. That's it. And now we are... We're not live, but we're essentially no. recording. Welcome to the show, Harold. I appreciate you. Uh, Thank you very much, Jerome. It's an honor to be here with a sailor such as yourself. Hey, it's an honor to be aboard this beautiful vessel. Holy smoke. I didn't expect this. Uh, I thought I was going to hop on like a 40-foot something. This is much more. Yes, Cassiopeia 2 is an amazing vessel. She's 72 feet long overall. Uh, she weighs 38 tons, has a 16-and-a-half-foot beam, she is a ball-headed, gaff-rigged wooden schooner. What year? Uh, she was launched in 1999, so she's not really very old. Oh, wow. And she's pine on double-sawn oak frames, and, uh, and she has, she's tiller-driven, which is astonishing for a boat this size. Yeah, I feel like um, you need a, a couple of people to just you know, hold it. You don't, you don't <laughs> want a lot of weather helm, do you? <laughs> no. Well, oddly... Um, uh, as a matter of fact, this is the sister ship of the boat that I spent many, many years on. And the sister ship, um, generally speaking, helmed herself. You just tie the tiller off and watch her go. A little slocum action. So, yeah. Yeah, it, it right. Is. She's, they're just, she's this, uh, hopefully this boat is going to be of a similar balance uh, as, the, as the old one. Yeah. Well, and, and how, long, how long essentially, so you, how long have you been on this boat in particular? Uh, I acquired this boat three years ago. Three years ago, okay. Uh, but I managed it. I got her in Savannah, and then we sailed to St. Augustine, and we sailed to Fort Pierce, and that's when I realized that I was going to have to do a full refit. Oh, really? And so then, again, this is all part of a nonprofit organization called the Cassiopeia Schooner Project. Yeah. Which we'll get to that We'll story. get into it. Yeah, yeah, for and, sure. Um, and so uh, I managed to get a, a benefactor, who allowed us to go into Riverside Boatyard, and I spent two and a half years um, wow. doing what I thought was going to be a four-month refit, 
Yeah, <laughs> it's funny how that goes, how isn't that it? Goes yeah, right. <laughs> and, you know, and it's funny. You talk to a sailor, and they're like, "Yeah, duh. yeah, totally." So, uh huh. I'm only going to be hauled out for like three days. I swear. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I kept I kept doing because I I too I go uh, live on Facebook almost every night since this has all started. Yeah, and um, and I kept saying, "Yeah, two weeks, two weeks." Two weeks. We're going to be ready in two weeks. <laughs> Boy, this is the longest two weeks I ever heard. Absolutely, yeah. Two years, more like it. But Was yeah. it, I mean, so really intensive? Was it mostly exterior, rigging, what? Uh, well, we changed. Uh, she had a bit of worm damage. There was lots of... Uh, the history of the boat was that the boat builder built her, sailed her down to the Turks and Caicos. She hung out in the Turks and Caicos for a while, came back to Savannah, Georgia, pretty much just sat there. Yeah. And then he decided to sell her, and a guy bought her who actually called me because I had the sister ship in the Pacific. And he called me and said, how do you like yours? I'm thinking of buying this Cassiopeia too. And I'm like, wow, cool, there's a sister ship. I would buy it if I were you. I love mine. Yeah. And so he did. And so he had her for eight years, and she never left the dock. Oh, and geez, so yeah. this poor vessel has really hardly done much in the way of sailing. Yeah, it's keel is sort of clean, and so, so to speak. So anyway, he had uh, had her sitting there at the dock. Apparently, she'd been hauled out three years before. Mm-hmm. Apparently, he'd spent two hundred and fifty grand on her. He, and when they hauled her out, they put a new mast in her and, and all of that sort of thing. And she had two engines in her. And supposedly, I just had to put the uh, heat exchanger on the big engine, and away we'd go. Well, unfortunately, when I arrived, both engines were seized. Um, seized? Yeah. And, and uh, she had yeah, been, yeah. she had been, and what wound up happening was that a, a shipwright had called me and said, you know, there's a sister ship to your boat. Uh-huh. Um, gosh, we're going backwards on this story. It's all right, it's I'm going to have to do some filling <laughs> because I, I lost the other boat and then this boat became available. And w- the shipwright called me and said, hey, ma'am, uh, this guy's on this boat for this long. She sat at the dock the whole time. He's dumped all this money in her, but she's going to die at the dock being an Airbnb. How is your project going? Because he had heard of the Cassiopeia Schooner Project, yeah. which, is, which is about building some schooners and uh, having one with doctors and one with marine biologists and one with circus people and then using them as a nonprofit venture that goes around and creates well-being in coastal communities. Nice. And this was all dreamed up by myself and all my friends after I lost my other vessel due to a burglary in Vanuatu. Yeah. So then I'm back in the Virgin Islands. I'm promoting this project, and I get a call from the shipwright. Says, "This guy's going to sell Cassiopeia two, um, and he's going to sell her on Friday, and she's just going to rot at the dock, being an Airbnb. The guy who's going to buy her's from up north, and he's just going to let her sit there at the dock and Airbnb her. And so I literally had five friends get together and say, Harold, this just has to be destiny." Yeah, this yeah. vessel looks identical to my old one. Um, oh, really? It's, it's a shocker. Like it's seven on. feet longer, but it's exactly the same plan, same shape. That's this one. And I'm showing him a picture. Oh, and, beauty. Uh, and, yeah, for the audience, it's and, just and a beautiful exactly painting. that's exactly what the old one looked like. You know? Oh, wow. It's a, it's a weird destiny. Yeah. And there was so much passion around my old boat that all the people who had been involved with her, you know, lent me the money to come get this one nice so back to the story of this one yeah uh, here you want to pull that microphone a little closer oops sorry no you yep, sit yep. back and okay. get comfortable pull there that yeah, mic yeah, closer yeah, okay. there okay. we go sweet um back to the uh story of this one i got it in savannah made it to saint augustine made it to here and then realized i had to do, do a full refit so what we wound up doing was we wound up changing 25 planks put in about 50 different Dutchmen because she had a lot of worm damage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, so, what, well, in the, so with the worms, are you just finding literally like holes all over the place and just yeah. completely We went around. Them? In fact, I had one crew named James who uh, came aboard and he went around with a little flathead screwdriver and just poked around on the hole and crunch. He'd go oh, through and geez. say, and so the joke was, uh, you know, we had, we had plugged, you know, 150 holes 200 holes and we changed planks and we all you know all of this and it's almost getting you know to where i think we're done yeah and then i'd hear james go hey boss <laughs> <laughs> got another one and i'm like 
quit poking holes in my boat, James. Is there <laughs> anything that you can do to to prevent it? I mean, I know they used to use like copper copper sheathing around like um Oh, what's that one? One of the great tall ships, the Cuddy Sark or something like that. Yeah. Well, the invention of copper sheathing is one of the reasons that the English beat the Spanish in the war, because their boats had no barnacles on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and so that was the old thing. And so now we have paint that is loaded with copper. Oh, same okay, thing. Okay, so it's just you throw the anti-fouling on there and throw that the anti-fouling it. on there, and that's all you can do these so days. So it's sitting there. there for all those years. The antifouling comes off and then the worms come And out. I have to say, uh, there was a lot of kind of unimaginable things that had been done kind of wrong on the boat, including the fact that they literally put it back in the water without painting where the stands were. Oh, really? So when I hauled her out and I saw all the squares from where the stands were in the boatyard, because when you put a boat, you know, I assume your gang are mostly sailors, and so they know what a boatyard is. Oh, yeah. But, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, they, I, I mean, it's just unimaginable <laughs> that you would put a wooden boat back in the water. Oh, they must have been, those, those little spots must have been so bad. Yeah, so I had worm damage where each one of the old yeah, stands yeah, were. Yeah, yeah, Oh, jeez. <clears throat> which required a number of planks and this and that, and so... So that was the whole bottom job part. And then I also had to redo the rudder post. Yeah. And um, and so then we also changed the rig because, unfortunately, even though the masts were only three years old, they had gone soft because they used this two-part polyurethane on them and sealed them up. And they were pine poles, and they sat there in the Georgia sun and rain and just cooked and yeah, boiled yeah, themselves yeah. and got water inside them. And so... I literally had to change both masts, and I changed all the booms and gaffs and the bowsprit. Jeez, that um, is huge. Yeah, so that's huge. And she came equipped with a a rather unique situation, which was an 85-horse Perkins on one side and a 16-horse universal diesel on the other, uh, Kubota, basically. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's kind of a cool idea because the 16-horse could run the generator, could help you motor sail, Gave you two props when you were in the slips trying to handle a 72-footer. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of a cool idea. It's like having a kicker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but it would only push the boat at like two and a half or three knots by itself. Yeah. And so, so unfortunately, when I got there, as I said, both engines were seized. Well, I got the little one running, but I couldn't get the big one running. But I had a crew of old schoonermen and everything. The idea was that we had to leave the slip in three weeks because when we got the boat, the slip was owned by the other guy, and so we had to get out of there. Yeah. So I'd put a crew together to sail her straight back to the Virgin Islands, thinking that she was, you know, competent for right, doing right, that. Right, right, right. And uh, we get there, and oh my, there's so many things wrong. Like the deck, we had to repaint the deck because it was two part epoxied and so slippery that would do on it, you couldn't <laughs> walk on it. Like I said, the boat looked really shiny. Yeah, yeah, It was yeah, really right. pretty at the dock. A lot of lipstick. But a lot of lipstick and like little things, like unimaginable things. Like the first time I tried to hoist the sails, it get, they got jammed. It was no wind. I'm in the marina. I'm by myself. I'm hoisting the main. I get it kind of a third of the way up and things are feeling funny and I can't figure it out. And now I can't get it down. And so I'm hauling away on it, and finally I get it down, and I can't figure out what's going on. And I see that one of the blocks has blown its cheek off. Oh, a lot of friction then. A lot of, well, <laughs> they had used threaded rod as the axles oh, no. to rebuild all these blocks. They were all really, really pretty. Yeah. But because the threaded rod was digging into the shivs, it was pushing the shivs out and blowing the blocks apart. Oh, geez. I mean, can you imagine doing all that work? And using threaded rod as the axles. So there was all these kinds of unimaginable things. And anyway, my crew had gotten together and I had a couple of old schoonermen, including the original builder of the boat. Mm -hmm. And we're like, we don't need no stinking motor. Yeah. I got the 16 running. We'll say, and and Rob was like, yeah, I sailed her around with the 16 horse before. It'll, you know, we can, we can get there. And we were just planning on getting out of the channel and sailing in the ocean yeah all the way to the virgin islands well out to i-65 and then down yeah, yeah yeah so what wound up happening was a few things happened you know the first time we left the stem fitting for the um for the bobstay chain broke Ooh. so we had to turn around yeah so then i lost part of that crew 
So I started over again, and the next crew lived in St. Augustine, so we were just going to do a hop down to St. Augustine. And so we managed to pull that off. Um, and then in St. Augustine, the transmission went bad on the little engine. So ah, there I am yeah, sitting yeah. again. Yeah, yeah. And then I managed to get her to Fort Pierce. But uh, now the other part of the refit was that we changed both engines. So now I've got another 85-horse Perkins on the starboard side, but I changed the 16-horse for a 50-horse Perkins. So I got a oh, 4108 on nice. one side and a yeah. 4.236 on the other for all you types who know what that means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I got a 4108 50-horse in my West Sale. There you go. Yeah. And so, um, so yeah, so we've upgraded the motors. We've upgraded all the plumbing. I mean, the whole engine room's been painted white and turned into a different uh space than it used to be yeah and so there was just you know yeah we we did a whole lot to the boat and right now this timing is very interesting because literally eight days ago was our first sea trial after being two and a half nearly three years in the boatyard congratulations Thank very you. nice Thank what you. was it worth the effort Oh, uh, absolutely. I cannot wait for this to um, become what her destiny is. Because as I say, I, I think there's a lot of destiny in this situation. It's almost bizarre. Yeah, you just had to work for it. But hey, all good things. That's true. Yeah. I mean, I'll, one of the things that everybody has been, uh, who kind of follows me, is impressed with is the tenacity uh, that I have shown because yeah. uh, I did, you know, a thread of sanity left after two and a half years <laughs> in the boatyard. Anybody yeah, who's been no, in the boatyard can imagine yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, two and a half years. Boats have kidding? a way of weeding out, you know, the weak and uh, <laughs> only the strong survive. I think that's been a theme for centuries at well, this point on that's this stuff. For sure. Well, and what what are the future travel plans, uh, or the the immediate future travel plans for the boat? Uh, immediate future travel plans are hopefully as soon as this uh, west wind blows by, say in a week or or nine days, mm -hmm. uh, our first proof of concept, uh, which is a sail to the Bahamas, taking aid over to the Bahamas. Oh, okay. Because this boat is now part of a nonprofit, and so I think I am going to have to back up and kind of start. Yeah, yeah. At Can the you, beginning. Go um, ahead and uh, if you want to just get in like a full overview of, of the nonprofit, yeah, that'd be great. Well, yeah, I'll have to kind of start a little bit with the backstory. Sure. And the backstory. I'm all ears. I'm was just enjoying this. This is great. I was, I was an ensign racer in Austin, Texas. Oh, uh, nice. A 23 and a half foot Pearson built Allbird design boat. It's a big one. We have boat. one. You have one? Might be, yeah, my parents, yeah. Wow, how uh -huh. cool. You're an ensign sailor. I wish I knew exactly what number it was. I want to say it's like 1431 or something. Mine was 578. Oh, wow. An and she classic. still exists. Yeah, and yeah, still, yeah. Uh, yeah. We used to, at, at the sailing school, I learned how to sail, or well, I taught and learned how to sail at the same time. Uh, we had 191. Oh wow! And it was in an some of the best shape we had had. Just you know, somebody really took care well, of it. Well, I have yeah. one claim to fame. I'm an ensign national champion. Oh, so you got the gold stars won, around the main? I won the nationals once. Or Actually, no, that's the world. It didn't count. No, no, uh, you do get the gold stars around oh, you the main. Do, you as do. An okay. National champion, but it was the spring nationals. Oh. So it was kind of a fake nationals. Right, right, right. Because the five-time national champion, five times in a row, mm -hmm. was Dean Snyder. And he was okay, in Houston. Yeah. And the Nationals are always up in the Northeast because most of the fleet's up in the Northeast. Yeah, like Newport. So they Atlanta. finally decided to honor him by having a Nationals down in Houston. And mm -hmm. all of our region was like, I mean, some of us were coming in third and fourth and that sort of thing as well. And so they're like, okay, these Southern sailors, we'll go down there and sail in their waters for once. And, uh, and so they did. And, uh, and that particular regatta, I was staying with the national champion who was the Commodore of the Houston Yacht Club in his very flash house. And, and I had learned a lot from him. Uh, my, one of my philosophies about how to learn to do things is follow people who are good at it. Yeah, so I would follow Dean around. His name was Dean Snyder. And I followed him all around. And, um, and the, at the starting line on the first race, 
Um, we were both at the pen in, and I try and tried to duck him and get in between him and the pen. And he screamed at me, no, Harold, you're not going to make it. And I didn't. I hit him like one foot from his transom, knocked a hole in his boat. Oh, no. Spun him over onto port in the hole, in front of the whole rest of the oncoming fleet. Created this huge cluster mess. And um, Welcome to Texas. Yeah. And then we did a 720 and won the race. In fact, uh -huh. we won every single race in that regatta. And so that's my claim my, to fame. My claim very, to fame not, in the, from bad. the very beginning. So... That led to um, the real story happening because I drug the boat up to uh, Newport to race in the Nationals in Newport mm -hmm. uh, the very next year. And, um, and, uh, and that's when I saw the big boat scene. Yeah, yeah. I'd never really known about it. I was just a little Austin, Texas lake sailor. And so here I am, this hippie dude running around in Newport with my little boat. And It's a different world, isn't and, it? Yeah. And so I was. A, I had a little architectural construction business, uh, you know, in my early 20s. I didn't even get out of architecture school until I was 23, so I hadn't done much yet. But right. I had just landed the biggest job of my career, you know, American dream coming true, you know. And, uh, and so I'd gone to the bank, and they were going to lend me some money for some uh, bobcat and this and that and um and so i'd gone up to newport with this in the background had this bid hadn't really signed anything yet or anything and i get up to newport and i see all these guys on these monstrous boats um going and seeing the world yeah and sailing and i'm like harold what are your passions? You know, every year around Christmas, I go traveling down to Guatemala and Belize. I love to travel. What's your favorite hobby? Sailing. These guys are getting paid to travel and sail. Yeah, right. If you go back and you start this job, it's going to take four years. You're going to wind up with 1.8 kids, 2.2 cars. You're going to have a white picket fence around you. This is a no-brainer. I'm out. I went back to Texas, gave away my job, and uh, and to my some of my other buddies in the construction business, got in my car and or van and drove back up to Newport Island, Newport, Rhode Island, where I'd met a woman that I'd fallen in love with. Ah, and the we, plot thickens. We put her. Yeah, there's always a love story <laughs> in every good story, and so yeah, Kristen was. Well, I fell in love with Kristen while I was up there in Newport. And, uh, and we put our names up on the board and said, uh, experienced racers, but no blue water experience. We'll do a delivery for free. Oh, there you go. So, uh, so, um, the, and the, the thing, the, the thing that sealed the deal for me when I was up there in the regatta was it was the first time that Shamrock and Endeavor were coming oh, the together. The J boats, yeah. The J boats. Because the lady, uh, the lady from the Bristol Mars Fortune, I can't remember her name, but she had bought Shamrock. And she didn't have anybody to play with. So she, oh, she bought Endeavor, sorry. And so then she gave the Historical Museum of Newport all the money to refurbish Shamrock. So they were coming together. And so there was this huge spectator fleet. We just finished the Ensign Nationals. And we were sticking around because I was flirting with, uh, with Kristen, yeah. me and my buddy Tom. My best friend, Mighty Tom. And so we're hanging out in Newport. We don't want to go home. And next thing you know, I go out single-handing into this fleet of spectator boats. Yeah. And my ensign. And I don't have, I've got my racing sail up, so I don't have a window in the jib. And I can't see underneath it. So every time I go down low to try and see underneath it, and there's all these multi-million dollar yachts. And I realize, yeah. if I hit one of these things, life is over. Go you know, back to Texas. Like, go back to Texas. <laughs> so I just I just tack all the way over the edge of the fleet and then beat my way out into the out out of the harbor, yeah. away from the whole fleet. And then this thing that happens in Newport that doesn't happen in Austin, Texas, a light fog came in. And I'm like, holy smokes, I can't see. Um like where exactly are where, we? where is that? But I knew it was dead down. So I turned and set the chute and I was headed dead downwind back into the Newport Harbor and I went up to the foredeck to do a jibe and you know I can single hand jibe but you just lean against the shrouds and it right, makes right. you carve and so I do this nice little jibe and as I'm holding on to the pole I turn around and look and on either side of me literally 20 feet away are these 10 story high oh spinnakers my. with shamrock and endeavor coming past me at 10 knots you know and I'm right in between them and I, I'm I'm just shocked. I'm standing there with my mouth hanging open. I don't even know. I, I'm just like, oh, oh, man, man. And they're both clapping. 
good jibe because it had been a good jibe it was yeah. a perfect the chute didn't flutter nothing you yeah, know and right. i was all by myself and i was like and those boats went by and i'm like oh my goodness what must it be like yeah right. what must the the adventures the travel the crew the women the the what must it be like to be on one of those boats oh man okay okay that's it i'm 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 going to see I, that's it i'm done i'm dusted it's and, the world telling you something and, right there. Uh, uh, yeah, and so that's where the whole dream started was in Newport. And then Kristen and I put our names up on the board and wind up getting a delivery. And we do a delivery that is my first storm story. Mm. And uh, and it's uh, we left Newport in late November. Oh, yeah, I know about leaving in November. Bad, <laughs> bad idea. Yeah. And so we were in a Gulf Star 60 with a very inexperienced young English captain. I didn't know anything, of course. Right, right. And Chris didn't know anything. Where were you guys headed? Uh, we were headed to Bermuda. Bermuda, okay. And we got off of Hatteras, about 200 miles off of Hatteras, and got caught in an eddy of the Gulf Stream or something, and uh, 70 knot norther, and um, lost the helm. And we had um, 50 foot seas verified yeah. by the Coast Guard. So 50 foot seas, Coast Guard talk, means 100 foot faces. It was perfect storm stuff. Yeah. It was unbelievable. I've never been anything like it since. Right, right. But we were surfing down these waves and then the helm broke and then we were floundering. And the boat would rise up on the wave like that and then the water would wash across it and we would heel over past 90 degrees yeah. to like 110 degrees. We were all huddled in the uh, settee, underneath the settee table, holding onto the poles. So when the boat went upside down, we'd crash up against the bottom of the settee table Oy. and then fall back down on the floor. Was it just side slip basically laying a hull? Side slip, laying a hull, broken helm, all the sails down. Yeah. And every now and then, like every seventh or eighth wave it would catch her and throw her bow down and she would just free fall down the face of the wave Jeez. and when she got to the trough she of course it was at night yeah, yeah. um when we got always to her, always always at night. night what is it about i don't that? i don't know you know too i mean all of us you've just been out there increase just... the terror factor <laughs> essentially <know>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that whole thing you know um <laughs> Mo, uh, uh, how do they put it? Uh, uh, lots and lots of beauty interspersed with moments of terror. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, and that's um, how it goes. so yeah, the the boat would just bury its bow, like all the way to amidships. Yeah, like it's going straight just down. Plunge right in. You know, and uh, and then it unbelievably would pop up, and then we do the up elevator ride, and then the down elevator ride on the other side with the little go upside down at the top, Jeez. and we did that for like ten hours, and then. The roller furling line broke. And oh, that's we, why I don't use roller furling. I'm telling you, mate. <laughs> we when we get to the top of the wave, the jib was out now. Yeah. And seventy knots, it was gonna tear the boat apart. We knew we had to get it down. And you know, I mean, it's funny because when you come off the top of the wave, yeah, and you get down just enough where you're out of the wind, it's creepily yeah weird and it's quiet yeah, you, yeah, you've yeah. probably been in uh, those things times. You know? yeah, yeah. like I, I got a real kick out of your your uh show and you're you know you're using the video to try and show sea state yeah and yeah, it's yeah. just it's impossible it's like 10 percent yeah you know yeah. i mean you look at it and you go oh come on man i was about to cry i was so scared like this and, doesn't look too bad it looks, yeah, you know, it looks like, a day like nah, you don't understand <laughs> you know? well and to i mean with that footage like i said in the talk when it gets to a point you, you put the camera down oh yeah you can't you know, it's not no like way. i had mounting stuff and all yeah, that yeah you, you don't have time for recording those moments when no, you're uh, and um and i you know you're, you're scared too it's not yeah, you're not, yeah it's not a priority yeah. at all but so just to finish off this storm story i'll try and get, get to, to get yeah to did you end up getting that. it down or did it so shred he, so he can move on so yeah so we have to get it down and it's one of those roller furlers with the stupid little allen setup uh, for the wire halyard that goes up in oh, it, so you got an Allen great. wrench yeah, key yeah, thing yeah. that has a sprocket on it. Good luck luckily, I'd worked on the <laughs> roller furler before we left, so I knew how it went. So I went yeah. up there with a the little Allen key, you know, and the first mate okay. came out with me, and so we were out there, and he was tied to the mast, and I was up there in the bow pulpit, yeah. and every time the boat would go upside down, I'd just hold on to the anchor with my feet propped underneath the bow pulpit, 
right? Yeah. Because I'm when we'd go up and the, yeah. and, the, and the wave would hit it sideways, you know, and we'd roll over like that. And then we'd slide down the back of the wave. And while we're sliding down the back of the wave, we'd pull some in, you know, pull some in and pull some in. God. And we were getting it. We were getting it down. And then she did the catch and face down the wave. And now me and him are just sitting there holding on to this jib. And we are free falling, yes. bow down, pointed at the ocean, 10 stories, you know, 100 feet. Yeah. We're falling. We're falling. Free fall. Pretty much the keels in the water, I think. Yeah, yeah. But maybe. And and then it does what I said. We hit the trough, and I remember. Oh, turn- you guys are up there now. We're on deck. I'm on experience. deck. <laughs> and I remember seeing this happening and watching the water come, and and then I turn around and point my back towards the sea, and hold on as tight as I can. And I remember the water rushing past my foul weather gear, and I, there was this little pocket of air. And I took my last gulp of air out yeah. of that little pocket, and then and, and then and it was so quiet. It was so weird. I could hear and kind of see the bubbles going by, you know, from the glow of the bow lights. That yeah. Were still on. And it's like and I think, well, H, this is it. Yeah. Right. You're, you're sailing to the bottom of the ocean, and then you know, I'm holding my breath. I'm holding my breath. I'm woof. It comes back up. And so this is the second time I've been at sea. We had done one other delivery down to Florida with an old fisherman dude, and it went really great, and we did a little bit of the ditch, and, you know, anyway, right, it was right. real fun. And so my second time at sea... Threw you in uh, the deep end. Threw me in the deep end. And <laughs> unbelievably, <laughs> we wound up back in Newport, me and Kristen. How many days then after that? It, it was... Uh, it was That storm only lasted another, you know... 10 or 12 hours nice nice and, and so then we we were in flat calm motoring yeah right and Sucked that's when I've, everything I've, out. I've, I've got a, a little story in my in my book uh about that it's, yeah uh, it's uh i, I should do you mind can, can i read it no 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 okay go no, ahead and grab it man because it's it's a very you'll like this you'll like this because i bet you i yeah this is great no this is, i bet uh, you've actually seen it too so, oh, by the way, guys, I've written a book called From the Bottom Up. Yeah, and I'll and, what I'll yeah. do, uh, Harold, is uh, in the description of the episode, I'll be able to put links to all, like your website and all that sort of stuff. So count on that. Okay, cool. Um, here we go. Let me see. When did you write the me. book? Uh, about six or seven years ago. Oh, nice. Yeah, I remember... Uh, doing mine and just like after the whole thing was finished i, I thought to myself i was like you know if you just told me 20 years ago that i'd have like a, a book about sailing alone around the world you gotta be kidding me and then yeah. you have it and you're sort of like wow wow this is, this is pretty so here, nice so here you go guys here's a little excerpt from the book and it's about the next day because it follows this storm story okay and um and we got somebody working on deck so uh it's called the edge by me and it goes like this gee whiz it goes day and night meant nothing but it was night asleep and awake seemed like the same but i was awake the storm that had punished the boat for days was over and the sea was calm. The surface of the ocean was so smooth that it was invisible. The air was so clear that a black hole could have been seen. As I searched the horizon, I realized I was searching for the horizon. There was none. I rubbed the salt crust from the edges of my eyes and let them water to try and get some focus. They were focused. The stars were as sharp as needles with tips white hot. (laughs) I rattled my eyes from one star to another, beginning above my head and then working down to where the horizon should have been. It was gone. When I was looking down past the lifelines into what should have been the sea, I realized that the stars had taken over and surrounded the boat. I started to shake my head to clear it of this illusion, but stopped. 
the thought came to me that it was possible that I had sailed off the edge of the world. I looked up and back down, and still there was no trace of the horizon. That ever-present line that defined the edge was gone. All was the same, glistening, twinkling, flashes, with the deepest nothingness in between. Night and stars above, night and stars below. I had a fear that was half elation as my weary mind grappled with the sense of sailing through the heavens. Nothing of me could move save my neck. Rolling my head up and down, my eyes continued to register the impossible. But I believed it was possible off the edge of the world. From far away, the drone of the diesel engine slowly came to my ears. With it came the conscious need for an explanation. I decided to look and see how the prop could be pushing the vacuum of space to move the boat forward. When I stood up from behind the wheel and walked to the cap rail, I instinctively looked out one last time for the horizon. There was none for the last time. I looked down and I saw a trail of stars splitting away from the hull and recognition and reason slowly forced me back to the edge of the world. The sparkling flashes quietly became the familiar glowing lights of tiny iridescent luminous ocean organisms and began to separate themselves from the reflections of the all too brilliant stars. I looked back up and it was there. The faintest, finest line between thousands of heavenly twinkles and thousands of ocean twinkles. It brought me back to the sea. A brief sense of loss faded into a warm feeling of homecoming. I will always believe that I am one of the lucky mariners who has sailed off the edge of the world only to find himself blown back into the hands of Mother Ocean, a wondrous gift for a simple man such as me. Nice How about that? job, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm literally, I'm picturing all that in my head, and obviously it, it helps to have sort of seen a lot of that stuff, but that's yeah. a great description, man. It nice is. Nice job. But it is such an, I'm sure you've noticed it, like, so there are some nights, like you talked oh, yeah. about being in the doldrums. Yeah, for, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, it's, isn't it astonishing that is, to see as calm like that? That is one of my favorite uh, places on this planet, is the doldrums. As, as frustrating as it can be, you know, when you're, because I'm always just trying to sail through it. I can't motor. Yeah. And, yeah. But at the same time, I mean, the views, and especially at night when it's just, it's just so flat, and you can hear, you can hear every dolphin for I don't know miles around because yeah. it just carries along. You can hear whales. Yeah. Oh, you can I mean, hear, oh, it's it really it's, is. It's eerie, but it's it's amazing. And yeah, the stars. There were a few nights where. You know, I would sleep on deck, no sails up, boats rocking just a little. But yeah, like you said, I mean, you can see every single reflection of every single star. You're seeing double. I know. That's just absolutely I mean, amazing. I mean, it's, and sometimes out there, there's so many stars you can't see constellations. Yeah, you they, can they hard, get you muddled can't in. Pick them out. Yeah, I, yeah, I was yeah. like, I, my whole story started in 1990, so I got very lucky. I started with a sextant good man yeah, yeah yeah so i uh i there were no you know the, the loran was just yeah, Loran, out, but yeah you know, but mean, that's still, only you couldn't shore. trust it and it's all, and it's only you know it's a fm signal it's only on shore right right so you know um or within you know you still you still uh whip it out every once in a while um no no <laughs> <laughs> i try i try to do it at least two times on any voyage so if i'm going from like south carolina to maine or something like that or i'm trying yeah, yeah. trying to do a bigger voyage then i'll always break it out yeah, at the first opportunity yeah. just yeah. just to refresh a little bit you know well and these days they have a lot uh you've got a different gear for breaking down a site oh yeah you know, yeah, yeah because no, for sure i don't know if anybody i do a little bit of a cheater method too I, yeah because, I, i'm not doing it the old school way well and so i had to do it the old school way yeah and it's one of the things I, I i mentioned to folks is that when i first started sailing in the first three or four years the types of people that you met out at sea 
at least had to have a certain amount of uh, mathematical capabilities. Right, right. Yeah. Because you could not break down that formula unless you, you know, were a little bit, you know, savvy. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. So people who went to and see... And dedicated to it. To that's learn, right. Learn to that learn about, you know, how to use the HMO tables, how to break down this site, because there's so many variables in that uh -huh. in that formula. And if you muck one of them up... Oh, yeah. Then you're, you're in, like... You're in the wrong ocean, man. Yeah, <laughs> you're in the wrong ocean. And, you, you know, you go... Oh man, no, I can't be there. Can't be there. I can't be there. Yeah, I must have done yeah. something wrong. What I still, did I, do I wrong? still remember the first time I got within under a mile of my position, and I was so, That'd so be, stoked. I'd be really I good, was like, you know. Oh my god, like, because I, you know, obviously in today's world, you can just check it against your GPS. Yeah, but. I would, you know, I would always do it all without looking at it and all that sort of stuff. And then, yeah, I, I still remember that day and being like, yeah. holy cow, like, I don't need the GPS anymore. That yeah. was wrong because, you know, I think the very next well, day I was like I mean, 80 miles you know, off. People use a GPS to come in a channel at night, you know. Yeah, um, true. It's true. You know, it's, it's like it pinpoints you. And that is wonderful. We used to have what we called freighter fixes. Because oh. the guys on the freighters were, you know, running their kind of same courses and all that stuff. And they had really yeah. good navigators, you know. Oh, yeah, and yeah. And so if well, you saw a freighter, board, if you saw a freighter, you'd always call them and ask them, where am I? Yeah, 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 right. <laughs> we used to, I, I learned over in the Solent and uh, did all my sort of schooling as far as navigation and all that. And I was lucky to do that in the early 2000s when the yeah. RYA wasn't even teaching GPS. Yeah. So it was all old school pilotage, blind navigation. And I think shortly after that, they sort of stopped doing that and started focusing more on the on GPS. The electronics, yeah. Yeah. And, it, you know, I guess rightfully so in some ways. It's, it's, it's true. I mean, I, uh, I, I had a, a buddy of mine who was, he, he became a, a yacht or an ocean master. And he had to, they still make you do the, the sextant stuff. And he, he told me this great story. He goes in there. And the first day, the instructor's there. He's like, all right, so your GPS breaks down. You're in the middle of the ocean. What do you do? And, you know, somebody was like, well, that's when we get our sextant. And he's like, no, you get your backup GPS. <laughs> and when that breaks down, what do you do? <clears throat> you go get your other backup GPS. GPS. <laughs> he's like, exactly. you are about to learn, like, just a hobby art that mm. almost guaranteed you'll never actually have to utilize I mean, it is super rare that you'd even, even if you got struck by lightning, the chances of that knocking out every little handheld or every little device that has some sort of GPS fix on it would be pretty rare. It's, it's true. And so, which is a good it's thing. It's a wonderful but thing. But it's like a sad a thing, thing, too, I think. Well, I'm I telling feel you. like, you know, there's this trip um, from uh, Grenada to Trinidad. And Trinidad has this, uh, the, the mouth of the dragon that you have to go through to get yeah, through. Yeah, yeah. And it's only like uh, 200 yards wide on this cliff face that goes for miles and miles and miles. Mm -hmm. So if you're not lined up with it exactly, you can't see through it to see it. It just oh. looks like cliff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when, in the old days, when you got there, you're always like, hmm. Should I go east or should I go west? Well, I don't see it. I must have missed it. it. Um, oh, shucks. And so, I'm doubting myself. Yeah. Now. And so you go west and you go west and you go west and you're not seeing it. And you're thinking, oh, man, should I turn around now or should I go a little further? Mm -hmm. Should I turn around now or should I go a little further? <laughs> <laughs> so you'd sail up and down the coast. And so when GPS came out, I kind of I kind of did say, well, that, you know, it sort of takes some of the fun out of it because being lost was part of it yeah that's I think again so. I think uh, so. like i said about the old salts you know i mean you had to kind of have kahunas as well i mean yeah, you yeah. had to you had to be somebody who you know could put up with the fact that oh my i yeah, don't know where little, i am I there's don't a know. lot of people looking at you waiting for your answer and you got to kind of come up with it yeah, that's know, right you know, you know so. that's, that's funny about the what's it called the dragons mouth of the dragon the mouth uh, of the vocals, dragon. I, I, I can't remember there's a it's actually in Spanish, I think. Oh, okay, um, okay. But it means mouth of the dragon. That that reminds me so much. So when on the Appalachian Trail, you know, they've got these white blazes that they paint on, you know, trees, and that marks that delineates. Yeah, this is the Appalachian you Trail. You found the thing. Yeah. And in in some states, it's literally like 
every five trees. So you just constantly see them. But other states, sometimes it's like a mile in between. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things you get so used to. You're always seeing them. And then you wouldn't see it and you wouldn't see it. And you'd be like, oh, my God, I think I might be on the wrong trail. And then you start second guessing. And you're like, OK, well, I'm going to go back the other way until I see one. And then you're going that way for like 10 minutes. You don't see one. And you're like, well, I better go back the other way. <laughs> and there's stories of people literally walking back and forth, back and forth. And then they'll just sit down and wait until somebody else comes along. Well, yeah. And, and so when you were a sailor in the old days, you know, it, it wasn't unusual to sail around for a, a little while. day or two yeah, right. waiting for the right conditions to get into a port or you know, something, you arrive at night, and they called it standing off. You stand off. Yeah, you yeah, just yeah. You just reach back and forth where you know you can't hit anything yep. and wait until you can figure out, you know, uh, where to go. So it was a whole different approach whole different. to sailing. It, it just, you know. I still, though, when I, so I was, uh, I had the, the distinct pleasure of running the water sports center at, at the Bitter End Yacht Club in the BVI. Oh, how for, fun. For a long how time. Fun. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Unbelievable, but that was one of the things that because you know we'd zoom around in the rescue boats at night and stuff like that. Yeah, and I always told my staff, yeah, I had two rules essentially. I was like, don't get drunk and go boating. You can go and boat and you know have some drinks, but don't get drunk and then go. No. But the other one was if you are not a hundred percent sure of where you are because there's a lot of reefs and stuff around there. I was like, just stop. Stop and wait until you know exactly where you are. Regroup, regroup, yeah. and then go ahead and start going. Because if, if you, if even there's a doubt in your mind, it could be real trouble. Especially if you're flying at you know 15, 20 knots, you yeah. know, a little rescue boat, you know. Yeah, yeah, so. yep, yep. I, Rules uh, to live I, by. I, by I raised... Jerome Rand. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Just stop and regroup, <laughs> and don't just blast on. Um, I raced in Foxy's wooden boat regatta. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Because I had Coral Bay as my home with the old boat. Oh yeah, yeah. Yost so, would have been. Uh, what yeah, are they? What are they well, I guess it's about the the soggy dollar. That was the one they always said. Uh, a yeah. sunny place for shady people. That's right. You would have right. fit right yeah. in. I, I definitely. <laughs> I, yeah, we were we were famous in the Virgin Islands for a long time. I don't doubt it. I don't and doubt so. it. There's always that. That place is uh, is pretty full of characters and yeah. man. It, yeah. it was it was so I was so fortunate to be able to call that place home for for yeah. as long as I did. Yeah, um, me too, me too. Coral Bay is an amazing place, and all the people there are what has created what I've got going on right now. Yeah, to be yeah, quite yeah. honest, they're the, my biggest supporters and all that sort of thing. Well, the relationships so, that we forge, and this is something I I think more and more of as I get older. But you know, it really is. It's it's what creates the storyline. It creates the narrative of your life. You could buy all the things you wanted to, but it's the people that you meet along the way That's right. that I think really matter in the end. You can't you can't buy the story. No, and definitely not. So my story back to we'll get back to the kind of yeah 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 story. please. I, I go off in the weeds. Oh, all me, oh the me too, time. me too. I all I'll, I'll run off with you all over everywhere, but <laughs> uh, we'll try and keep the. Uh, the theme so anyway uh, we've done a couple of deliveries we get down to key west and we're trying to become crew on other boats me and my girlfriend Mm -hmm. and um and what wound up happening was this incredible dream come true story where we met a guy who had a 63 foot wooden schooner went sailing with him a few times uh affectionately known as uncle bud and uh bud crockett a real live descendant of davy crockett oh wow and uh and so he had cassiopeia and uh, and so we went sailing with him for a few times, and then he decided to sell her, mm-hmm. and he sold her to this guy who had no business with her, and then the guy uh, just wrecked her, and actually let her drag aground, and all the other schoonermen out of Key West came and saved her, and oh, wow. and it was just he had a nightmare with her, yeah, and so and then I saw this happening, and Kristen and I kind of decided that maybe, you know, I had hair halfway down my back. And, you know, I didn't have... <laughs> what green. year was this? This was 1990. 90, okay. And I didn't have, nice. you know, green and red socks. And I didn't have my Sperry Topsiders. And That's so what it actually, was back then, too. To get it, totally to, was. To get a crew job, you know, yeah. I didn't really fit the profile, you know. Get a haircut, hippie. I was, I was jumping the fence <laughs> to get into the regatta parties and stuff in order yeah. to try and, you know, promote us as, as delivery crew or whatever. Yeah. And then I finally just said, you know, Kristen... I don't think we're going to really fit in that world anyway. Let's just find our own boat. 
So he found this little boat called the Conk, a little 32-footer. And back in those days, nobody had a boat over 40 feet. Nobody. Yeah, no, it's all tiny. Crazy. Everybody went around the world in 28-footers, 32-footers, mm -hmm. yeah, 36-foot yeah. was big, you know? And so... Uh, so we had found this little 32-foot thing with a hole in it, and I thought, well, maybe we can fix this and do that. And then meanwhile, Uncle Bud sold Cassiopeia, and the guy who bought her was getting in over his head. And he was like, oh, man, I think I've, I think I've, I don't know, I don't know what I'm going to do. I can't, I can't manage this boat. I can't, I, you know, and, I, and I'm like, hmm. And the wheels start turning in my Opportunity. head. Opportunity. And Uncle Bud had actually sent me to captain school lent me the money to go to captain school so that when Jim got Cassiopeia running, I could captain her uh, as a day sale yeah. business there in Key West. Yeah, yeah. And so I was connected with Cassiopeia in that way. I was helping Jim kind of do his remodel that he was doing to her, which was ridiculously flawed. <laughs> and um, it's not and easy so then he, he's getting in way over his head, and now he's let the boat drag aground, and all the skippers in Key West came and saved the boat and literally brought it back to the tea head and had tied him up to the mass because he'd been such a twat <laughs> during the during the adventure. He sat Let there the punishment at begin. the Key West bite screaming until a tourist came and untied him. So anyway, he was at wit's end. And so <laughs> uh, he took the boat back out, dropped it on the pick, and then Uncle Bud calls and says, how's Cassiopeia doing? Because he'd been hearing the stories about her being, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I said, dude, she is in serious trouble serious serious trouble man she's out there laying on one hook the decks are all opened up the engine won't start i just went over and had a look at her i haven't even seen him out on the boat in the last week and bud says will you tell him he better get me my money and i'm thinking in my head oh, he owes you money for the boat i thought he bought it and and so then a plan hatched so then i went and found him and he had been an attorney in Cleveland, and now he's working at the ice cream store at Key West. He's literally losing his marbles. Oh, wow. And so I approach him, and I say, Jim, you know, Uncle Bud needs his money. And, and, and he goes, oh, well, I'm going to sell my house, and I'll get him his money. Don't you worry. You tell him I'm going to sell my house and, and get, him, get him his money. I said, well, how much do you have in it? And he gave me a number, and I'm not going to ever talk about those yeah, numbers. No, that's but, right. And I'm like, okay, wow, well, hmm. Okay, then. And so I went back out, and Kristen and I went over and looked at the boat. And I said, Kristen, what do you reckon about this boat? I think we could make a play for this boat. And, uh, and so we looked around on the boat, and it was a disaster. He'd done this interior remodel, gutted the galley, gutted everything. It was a disaster. Was it similar to this? It was almost identical. Oh, okay. I mean, that's okay. what's so creepy about this. This, yeah, yeah, this yeah. is the weirdest destiny thing. I'll have to show you pictures of the old boat. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's yeah. unbelievable. It's almost the identical boat, only this one's seven feet longer. Right, right, right. So anyway, we, we look around, and I find his real estate agent's card. And so I call his real estate agent and pretend I want to buy his house. And she's like, oh, I've got, I've got these other contracts you that are better. Sneaky. This guy's not a motivated seller. You know, he's not, there's, I said, there's not a contract out on the house. He's, oh no, there's not a contract yet, but I got these other properties I'd love to show you. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, okay, well I'll get back in touch. Thanks. And I realize he's not going to sell his house. Yeah, yeah. He can't pay Uncle Bud. So then I go back to him and I say, hey mate, um, if I came up with what you've got in it, um, would you, you know, get out of it? He's like, oh, please, please help me get out of this. Please, please, please. Nice. So then I just had one more thing to do. I had to come up with that money. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then I had one more thing to do. So I went to my boss at the time, who was John Smittle, who worked at Southernmost Sailing down there in, in, in Key West. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd been working for him in a bareboat company, learning about all these boats and sailing and trying to learn all the stuff. And he allowed me to work on the refrigeration. He taught me to splice. It was like, you know, great. And so uh, so I come up to him in the morning and I sit down at the picnic table because we got boats, you know, people coming to check onto the boats. And yeah. he's a ex-Vietnam fighter pilot you know navy dude right, and right. uh and he's got that stare you know so i sit down across from him i'm sitting there quietly and he's trying to burn a hole in the back of my brain staring at me 
And he kind of starts getting this little <laughs> smile. And I said, I found a boat, John. I told you I was going to find a boat and run off on you. And he said, really? What boat? I said, Cassiopeia. He said, everybody knew her. He said, that is a lot of boat. And I looked at him and he looked at me and he's burning a hole in me. And he goes, he starts to smile. He goes, you need money, don't you? <laughs> and I said, yeah, but look at it this way. You got me for a year. I'll yeah, give you half right. my pay for a year to pay you back. And so I got the money for the deposit. Then oh, there was nice. one more phone call to make. Uncle Bud. Uncle Bud. So I call Uncle Bud and I say, Uncle Bud, you know that Cassie P is in big trouble. And that right now she's basically worthless sitting out there on the hook and all of that sort of stuff. Um, Jim's not going to be able to come up with the money, but I've talked to him and I can get him out of it. If you're willing to finance the rest for me and the phone was quiet and quiet leaving you hanging. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sitting there, I'm sweating from one armpit. You know? <laughs> it's like, I'm, and I'm thinking, did the phone go dead? And he goes, okay, then get him the blank off the boat yeah right oh, i'll bet i bet he was so relieved and i hung up the phone and i went did this really happen did this really happen do i now have a 63 foot 28 ton gaff rig schooner did this really happen 